It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air, now offering their furnace checkup for only 59 bucks. Call Lee's Heating and Air today, 801-747-LEES, or online at leesheatac.com. Out of the Sprint special guest line we go. Uh, we make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. From Sports Illustrated, our good friend Chris Mannix. Chris, how are you? Hopefully you had a happy Happy uh, Easter. Uh, I did. I ate pizza and ice cream, and that was my Easter. Quite the uh, quite the eventful holiday. Good for you. That sounds awesome, actually. <laughs> I, bet you were, I bet you were enjoying uh, all that horse uh, activity going on, huh? Did not watch a second of it. Um, I just was watching a movie, and I was on Twitter, and I see all the people just destroying it. So uh, I'm glad I I missed out. I think I saw J.J. Reddick say something like, I watched five minutes, hard pass, and that was enough for for me. (laughs) Yeah, I I had a little bit of the same. I mean, Gordon and I were talking about this earlier. I guess at least it's something, but it certainly isn't enough to satisfy or or scratch that basketball itch. Yeah, I mean – I think they've been showing a lot of old games, um, classic games, like they're doing again tonight with uh, Kobe Bryant's final game on NBA TV. I'd love to see, like, just rather than players playing horse, like, you know, how about we get, like, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, you know, commenting on game six of the 2000, what, 15, 16, whatever it was, uh, conference finals against Golden, against uh, uh, Oklahoma City, you know, and get Russell Westbrook in. Kevin Durant on the same thing, just sort of talking about how all that went down. Find some like really good games of the last, you know, 20, 30 years and get people involved, you know, as kind of commentators on it in, in separate boxes. I think there are, there are ways to be creative and give an audience something they're interested in rather than, you know, horrible, horribly connected, you know, cell phone videos that, that just look like they're done in, in the worst possible way. I'm trying to decide whether all this stuff, whether it's old games or whether it's horse competition or whatever, if it makes it better or worse, Chris. You know, because it, it just sort of, it, it, it's like almost scratching an itch where you scratch it once and then it itches even more, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. No, I mean, that that's, it's fair. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I haven't watched a, a second of, of sports TV in the last month. I mean, I, I've been, you know, doing some reporting for stuff that I've been writing, but you know, whether it's ESPN or NBA TV, I mean, there's really not a lot I'm going to glean off it. And, and I don't need to hear from too many ex-players kind of pontificating on certain things. I mean, it's just there's no games, so I don't really have a, a ton of interest in, in what's going on. I think that speaks to the larger fan base that's that's largely out there when it comes to, to television. Like, you're just is not going to tune in for, for a lot of stuff until these games come back. Well, speaking of that, there's a report from ESPN, uh, Brian Windhorst, I believe, that the NBA is working on a 25-day ramp-up period, that that's kind of what it would take to get back to playing games again. What are your thoughts on that? Because Gordon and I were just talking about it. It's not like you can go from quarantine to playing the next day. It's just impossible. No, yeah, you're right. I've been writing about this for the last couple of weeks, and you know, I had Jared Dudley on my podcast recently, and he he, he thinks that players need – anywhere from four to six weeks to get ready to play. And 
and he understood that was probably not going to happen. And I've talked to other players about this, but you know, three or four weeks is is, is what fits is what they think what they'll be okay with, and that lines up with with the reporting that's that's kind of publicly out there right now. I mean, it's the NBA. Their owners know you can't just throw guys back out there. There's too much empirical evidence of of players getting injured when stuff like this happens, whether it's because of a lockout or any type of hiatus. Um, you ramp up too quickly, and that's when you get ACL tears and Achilles tears and and just things that could really change the course of a player's career and the in the in the span of teams too, like how they're able to perform in in the coming years. So there's got to be some kind of warm. Even if there is a ramp up, though, I mean you're going to have players that are just not in any kind of condition. I mean I, I was watching actually I shouldn't just watch. I was on Twitter and I saw you know a comment Jason Tatum made today where he said you know I haven't he hasn't picked up a basketball in, in a month. So, I mean, I don't think he's alone in that regard. I mean, there's a lot of players out there that, while they might be doing some conditioning stuff at home, they're not doing much of anything else. So when they come back, uh, I don't think it's going to be very pretty at all. Chris, uh, something that's been going on here in Utah that you're well aware of is the this uh, this dispute, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. He came out yesterday and said that yeah we we went a while there without talking but uh, we have been in touch with each other essentially he said quote unquote we're grown men who want to accomplish uh, winning a championship do you think this is something that can be worked out do you think it's likely to be worked out or do you think uh, this is something that could fester for a while yet to come no I, I think it can be worked out um I know there was some reporting out there that it was beyond salvageable. I don't really buy that that at all. I mean, I just it's way too early to make that kind of of proclamation on all this. Um, you know, I, I was one of the first to report that that Mitchell was was furious with Gobert and and that you know I think in my story back in March I think I wrote that you know how Mitchell responded to this would make or break their relationship, but. I don't think we're at that point where we can draw any conclusions as to how Donovan Mitchell responds. I mean, we are still, you know, just past the first month of all this. These guys haven't gotten together as a team and communicated. They haven't gotten back to playing and, and done all that. I mean, there's there's just too much time that can go by. Too much can change in that period of time. Moreover, um, you know, Mitchell's in that position where, I mean, he's not going to be going anywhere. I mean, he's going to get a max contract offer and, in the history of of rookie contracts, there hasn't been a single player that's ever rejected a max contract offer. So he's going to be around, and I think it would have to take something catastrophic happening next year on the floor for this team to pull the plug and ultimately trade Rudy Gobert. I mean, it would. I just can't see it. I can't envision that scenario. Um, it's not to say that they're destined to win a championship together, but I, I just don't see you know the the, the Jazz giving up on this, especially when you consider the combined age of those two and, and just the level they play at. So I'm optimistic that this is going to be something that can be figured out. What do you think uh, about their games fitting together overall uh, on the floor? Well, I mean, they're, they're – I, I don't think that they're the perfect match offensively. I mean, because I think Gobert is still fairly limited in that regard, but – you know, when you have – the game is played on both ends of the floor. I mean, when you have a guy that is as dominant defensively as Gobert, I mean, you don't need him to be uh, in lockstep with Donovan Mitchell on the offensive end of the floor. He's needed to do what he does defensively, you know, chip in on the offensive glass, post-ups, you know, setting screens, things like that. 
um, and, and you'll get by. So, I, you know, I think they're they're very well matched to be cornerstone players for that team for years to come. I mean, when you when you look at that team, I mean, I, I've never had a, a feeling that you know Gobert and Mitchell were any were part of the problem, or like their their ability to do things together were part of the problem. I and mean, I, I think it's more about you got to add shooting around them, maybe a little more playmaking around them. We talked a lot during the season about Mike Conley and his evolution with that team. I think they're they're what's right with the Jazz, and and everything else I think just needs to be added on to it. Chris, do you think that uh, because of the way uh, contending teams in the NBA are built, and you, oftentimes they have two quote unquote superstars that are leading that charge, are Gobert and Mitchell? capable of becoming those kinds of players that are absolutely necessary in order to get to that point of contention? Yeah, I mean, I think Mitchell is, uh, he just has that, those qualities that he can be a, a superstar in this league. I think Gobert, at this stage of his career, you're kind of seeing what his peak is. Um, and it's still really good. It's all-star level. I just don't know if he's going to get significantly better if you can get four more good years like this out of Rudy Gobert you've got to be really happy uh, with what you have which does put a emphasis on making sure that whether it's through the draft or cherry picking the right guys in free agency you you make the right choice you add the right pieces I mean I use the example of the Spurs all the time I mean you know they were able to become the Spurs you know by drafting Tony Parker a future uh, superstar late in the first round, drafting Manu Ginobili late in the second round. I mean, they, they got lucky with Tim Duncan, no question, and Kawhi Leonard was one of the middle-of-the-pack first-round picks. But, you know, in between, they, they became what they became by, by finding the right guys to work around them. So I think that's what's going to be paramount for the Jazz moving forward. you got two guys that, you know, maybe aren't going to be looked at as the best duo in the NBA, but if you put the right pieces around them, you're going to be successful. What do you think about uh, Chicago's hire at uh, Vice President of Basketball Ops? Oh, I like it a lot. I mean, anybody that knows the NBA knows that Arturis Konosovas has been um, a, a top-of-the-list kind of executive candidate. I mean, the Nuggets elevated him to GM just last year, and he's been really interested in, in having this type of job. But he's interviewed, I think, as much as anybody uh, for these top jobs out there over the last couple of years. Um, he, he's a brilliant international scout i mean he's got that reputation from his days as the head international scout with the rockets and if you look at the success the nuggets have had with international players from yusuf nurkic nikola Jokic, uh you can even count jamal murray technically in that category but there have been others coming through that that organization i mean that's a lot of that is because of the eye of our turtles turtles so yeah i think it's a really good find i mean i think the the big question with him now is what does he do with the head coach? And, you know, Jim Boylan is there. I can't imagine Boylan staying. I mean, most executives want to bring in their own guy. And, you know, it's not like Boylan set the world on fire the last couple of years with Chicago. Uh, I, I think Arturis has an opportunity to to really fast-track this, this rebuild in Chicago. I mean, Kenny Atkinson's still sitting out there. It's almost miraculous that Kenny Atkinson still doesn't have a job. But if you look at that Bulls roster, a lot of young players, uh, guys that badly need a developmental coach and – Kenny Atkinson might be the best in the NBA if you look at what he's done in Brooklyn over the last three years. So, you know, if Arturis is smart, you know, he'll snap up Kenny Atkinson and, and that team, you know, you can be talking about that team in the playoffs as early as next season. Chris, how important is it for a league like the NBA to have teams in its biggest markets be successful? 
the Lakers have been successful off and on for years and years. You know, how important is it for Chicago to be like that for New well, New York? I mean, please. But, I mean, yeah. how, how important is it for these teams to be really good? You know, it, it's not as important as it used to be. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, certainly wanted to have uh, – you know, Bulls, Lakers, Celtics, those those marquee kind of original teams in those big markets playing at a high level. But, you know, what's played out over the last, you know, 10, 15 years is that the stars are what matter. I mean, teams tuned in to watch Oklahoma City because Durant and Westbrook were there. Cleveland are some of the highest ratings, you know, in the league because of LeBron. Miami, not a major market, but, you know, they, they were a ratings draw because of the, the players that were down there. I, I just, I think it's, it's it's more important individually. I would say that New York is not a laughing stock. I mean, if the, the Knicks, the fact that they've been, you know, basically with one playoff appearance this century is remarkable. I mean, it really is. That given, you know, how many opportunities they've had to to improve that team. That that's that's probably the only big market that the NBA wishes was yeah, going in a different direction. Otherwise, it's just about functional franchises and and star players. That's really what drives ratings and and drives everything in the NBA. Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated with us, your NBA Daily Assist. Chris, what can we read into that players are going to get paid their full paychecks on the 15th? Well, it's more that you know they, they couldn't come to an agreement on exactly what would be docked from from their, their paychecks. So it's just more sort of kicking the can down the road a little bit. I, I think come May 1st, um, there, there will be some garnishment going on there. Just a matter of percentages. You know, if it's 15%, 25%, they're negotiating that right now, the NBA Players Union and and the NBA. So it's coming no matter what. And players know it, too. I've talked to a few of them. Dudley even brought it up on my podcast uh, this week. I mean, they're they're very much aware that that it's coming. And there's not going to be a huge fight, I think, over it uh, because they know the fiscal realities of the league right now. I mean, the NBA is still getting the television revenue, but that TV revenue, even though it's, a massive chunk of the BRI, it's only about 33% of the BRI. So there's a lot of revenue not coming in, and you really can't expect owners to, to keep putting that money out, not when they have the option through that force majeure clause to, uh, uh, to, to cut it off. As you've had a chance now to let what you've seen over the first 60-plus uh, games in the NBA, Chris, is anything standing out to you as being particularly surprising or something that you didn't see coming or something particularly profound about the performances that took place? No, I mean, I, I think you keep it centrally located on the Lakers and LeBron James in terms of overall surprises. I mean, I the Lakers had eight new players coming into this year, and, and even if they had another superstar there in Anthony Davis, I never expected them to be – as as good as they've been in lockstep with each other, you know, right from day one. One thing Dudley told me this week was that you know, he's been on, I think, like eight or nine teams. You know, he said this is the best chemistry that he's been involved with with any team, and that's that's really surprising. And the fact that LeBron, who missed what twenty seven games last year with injuries, looked mortal really for the first time in his basketball career that he has played at at a close to MVP level is is really remarkable. So. You know, you hope that this season get restarted because you like to see if the Lakers could start what they finished, uh, could finish what they started rather. And you know, you have to factor this in. I mean, you know, you never know what can happen in the years to come, whether it's with the team individually or uh, the other teams around them. I mean, we could be looking at the LeBron's last chance to win a championship. I know we've said that so many times over the years, but 
you know, he's going to be 36 in next season, and you know, other teams around him are going to get better. So you just you just never know uh, what you're going to see in the future. So I I just like to see if the Lakers could could find a way to, to finish all this off. Chris Mannix with us from Sports Illustrated. And, Chris, there's been some buzz about uh, the NBA draft and when to have it and those sorts of things over over the last week. There were even some rules about what you could do scouting-wise and what you couldn't do. Let me ask you this. If you were giving advice to, let's say, a sophomore or, or a junior wanting to test the waters in the NBA, would this be a good year or a bad year to do it given those or given what's going on? You know, it's a good question, and I've asked different executives uh, that. I would say it's probably uh, a bad year to do it, you know, just because if you have any – look, if you're a top-tier guy, you, you come out, of course. But if you're like a, you know, a questionable first-round pick, um, you know, it might not be the, the best year to come out because there's a lot of uncertainty. And I, I think, you know, NBA teams might be uh, – will be more inclined to look at the – the sure things that are out there. All that being said, you know, if you don't know, look, I understand the NCAA tournament being lost hurts because that would have been an opportunity for, you know, executives and scouts to see guys play on a big stage. So maybe you have like a, a Steph Curry type of breakout performance in the tournament that elevates his game. But most of these guys, you've got 30 games of tape on them. You, you don't need the draft combine. I mean, the draft combine is, is, I find to be rather useless. I mean, I really do. I mean, you you got most of these executives just kind of like you know talking to agents about free agency and things like that. I mean, the combine, I just don't. I don't think it's it's as useful as as it portends to be. Um, so I think this is still, regardless of when they hold the draft, I don't think teams should feel like they're being shortchanged something by not having a combine or not having as much individual, you know, hands-on type of time with players. I mean, you've got plenty of tape on these guys. There's no such thing as an anonymous player anymore, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad. So I just, I think that, that you know, teams should be, the good teams are going to be fully prepared to draft um, at the highest of levels. And if they're not, it's, it's really their own fault. So, Chris, I have two questions for you. This is completely out of left field. But the first one is I need you to settle an argument I'm having with uh, with Jake. If you were going to start an NBA team and you were, had to pick a point guard from all t- players of all generations, which point guard would you pick? Players of all generations, which point guard would I pick? Probably Magic Johnson. Okay. Um, versatility. Above all, I mean, especially in today's game where you love guys that play. I mean, I can remember when I started covering basketball, the word tweener was like a four-letter word. You didn't want to draft guys that didn't have a specific position. Nowadays, it's like the most valuable thing in the NBA. So given Magic's marvelous talents as a point guard, the fact that, you know, I, I believe in like the playoffs, he's suited up in like every position, but including center. I think he took an opening tip once in a playoff game. Um so given all those factors, I'd, I'd have to take Magic. So my argument, Chris, is Here if we you're, go. If Hang you're going, on, Chris. Here we go. If Here we go. going to call Magic Johnson a point guard, which I'm fine with, then you must also call LeBron James a point guard, and I would take LeBron James over Magic Johnson. Well, I mean, in that context, sure. But, you know, Magic Johnson, every single game, played the point guard position. I mean, LeBron, I mean, I understand that he didn't have – 
traditional great point guards around him for much, if at all, of his career. And he was a primary facilitator for most of his career. But, you know, look, I, I, I have a story coming up this week on, on the Lakers season. And, you know, one thing that, that Frank Vogel talked to me about, you know, back before all this shut down was, you know, in, in September, October, he had a sit down with LeBron about two and a half hours. And one of the key talking points was playing point guard. Like Frank wanted him to be a primary ball handler and LeBron resisted. Like he, he didn't want to, to be that guy because he didn't, he felt like it took away something from him. felt like it took too much energy from him. Um, so he's never really wanted uh, that distinction or to be, to play that position full time. Whereas magic, you know, he has, he, he came out of Michigan state as a point guard and was a point guard for his entire NBA career. So uh, I just have to make that distinction there. Fair Thank enough. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. I, I'll send you a check. Thank you for the, the proper answer. I do. And my second question is this. Of all the fighters you've ever seen, whether it's on old black and white reels or on video or in with your own eyes live in front of you, who is the best fighter you ever saw? The best fighter I ever saw was a... And look, my my seventies boxing knowledge is limited to what I've seen occasionally on YouTube. So I I say this with due respect to Muhammad Ali, but it was Prime Roy Jones. I mean, Prime Roy Jones was just insanely good. I've never seen any fighter with that combination of reflexes and power. I mean, it, it, Roy Jones fought opponents, and it was like he was fighting them in slow motion. I mean, he would just have the ability to pull away from their punches and respond with vicious power shots of his own in, in ways I've, I've never, I've never seen before. I mean, he, you know, a lot of people that, that listen now might only remember Roy as you know, a guy that was getting knocked out, you know, in the last 10 years, like just a shell of his former self. But, you know, watch Roy Jones fights in the 1990s and early two thousands. He was nothing short of remarkable. He was, he was really special. So that that's someone I kind of grew up watching. You know, it was Roy, it was Mike Tyson, it was Austin De La Hoya, um, and that's the one that sticks out to me. Chris, you would put that. You would put that, Chris, over what you've seen out of Sugar Ray Robinson and the old timers, uh, or have you? Is the sample size too small? It just it's just too small. I mean, I've I've seen a little of the tape of Sugar Ray Robinson and. One thing I respect about Sugar Ray Robinson is that, you know, in today's boxing age, one of the reasons boxing is just stuck on the fringes is because fighters won't fight, you know, frequently and consistently enough at a high level. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson had 19 losses on his resume. I mean, it's remarkable, 19 losses. And he's still considered arguably the greatest fighter of all time. I mean, he fought Jake LaMotta like six times. Like, I think he fought him like three times in a month during one stretch. I mean, this guy was doing some things in boxing that, that, that we never see in today's day and age. So I, 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 I guess and that's another one that I just I haven't seen enough. I mean, I, I consider him um, maybe the greatest of all time, but of the ones that I've watched, I mean, Roy, I mean, there's just so much footage and, and so much to see. Like, he was just special. Chris, as always, thank you very, very much for joining us. Always a highlight of our week. You got it, guys. Thanks, Chris. Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated with us here on The Big Show on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. 
Jake, have you ever gone back and watched some of those old fights? Is that of interest to you at all, or is that just sort of bygone era? You're not going to bother with it? Does uh, watching uh, Raging Bull count? <laughs> Jake LaMotta, right? That, that uh, yeah, that movie was about him, correct. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, no? Right. You're saying no? Uh, I, I <laughs> Something tells me there may be some dramatization in that movie beyond... You know, reality. I know we don't talk a lot of boxing on this show, but over the weekend. (laughs) I had a speed bag when I was a kid. (laughs) I love that all I got out over the weekend. Bam. Speed bag as a kid. No, it was like a dash in a sentence. I know we don't talk a lot of boxing on this show, but over the weekend. I had a speed bag when I was a kid. That's it. Don't can't no, no, don't no, get to the see, story. No, no, you just no, mentioned no. the word boxing. No. Halt with your and stories. I have to go no. into my my speed bag. As it a was kid. a parenthetical clause. Is all. It's, it's, okay, continue on. You did take was a breath, it? Jake. <laughs> it's my fault. You're right, Austin. It, it that one's on me. It's all get good. To the point. Will you come on? It's on me. It's it's all my fault. Yep. <laughs> all right. Stay tuned. We'll have more big show. Ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The zone.